Let's turn in God's word this morning to the 16th Psalm. Psalm 16. This is not the psalm I'm going to preach on this morning. I have another text, but I want to read it because I'm going to make an important reference to it during the course of the message. Psalm 16, verse 1, the very opening word says, Preserve me, O God. So the psalm has to do with preservation. In in some measure, it will relate to David himself who wrote it. But in a greater measure, it relates to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In fact, if you were to look up C.H. Spurgeon, the noted preacher of the 1800s, then you will see that he says that this whole psalm, from beginning to end, has to do with the Lord and the Lord alone. So we'll read the psalm together. Preserve me, O God, for in thee do I put my trust. O my soul, thou hast said unto the Lord, Thou art my Lord, my goodness extendeth not to thee but to the saints that are in the earth and to the excellent in whom is all my delight. Their sorrows shall be multiplied that hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood will I not offer, nor take up their names into my lips. The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance and of my cup. Thy maintainest my lot. So you notice the words at the beginning, preserve me, O God. And notice here what it says in verse 5. Thy maintainest my lot still in the theme of preservation. The lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places. Yea, I have a goodly heritage. I will bless the Lord who hath given me counsel. My reins also instruct me in the night seasons. So even when it's hard and difficult and trying in the night seasons, then God guides and God preserves. Verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be. 
again the thought of preservation because he is at my right hand I shall not be moved therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoiceth very often in the psalm the word glory is put for our lips for our mouths because that's how we manifest and show our praise to God. We should sing his praise. That's why he says, therefore my heart is glad and my mouth or my lips or my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope. Again, preservation. Neither thou, for thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy, and at thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to our hearts this morning. Amen. Let's turn in God's word this morning to the Song of Solomon. So if you find a book of Psalms, you can go from there, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon, my text this morning is a very simple text. Chapter 5 in the Song of Solomon and part of verse 16. The words of the text. Fair to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is altogether lovely. Words referring to Christ and to the Lord Jesus Christ alone. He is altogether lovely. Some people will tell you that the Bible is very hard to read, very difficult to grasp and understand. Well, it has to be acknowledged and admitted, even as the Apostle Peter himself acknowledged in one of his epistles, that there are things in the scriptures hard to be understood. But for the most part, for the vast bulk of the scriptures, they're plain, they're easy, and they're straightforward. I'll be here tonight to preach the gospel to you and the message 
will be as simple as simple could be. And that is the way it is in the scriptures, certainly as far as the essential message of the gospel is concerned. It's clear. It's plain. And it's straightforward. Now, of course, having said that, one of the difficult portions, one of the parts that give people a bit of uh, problem is this book that we have read from just now. The Song of Solomon. Because of the nature and the contents of the book, it's not the easiest of the books of the Bible to grasp. Nevertheless, the message there is in some respects clear and plain. There are various schools of thought with regard to this book of the Bible. Who indeed is the bride? Who is the bridegroom? Who are the daughters of Jerusalem? And so on. But I have found by far the easiest way to understand this book is to read it with this in mind. And there are a number of authors that would hold to this view. Solomon's men have taken a beautiful looking young girl away from where she lived, out in the country, far from Jerusalem, far as that day would have it. They bring her to the city of Jerusalem. They bring her before Solomon. And they feel that because of her ravishing beauty, because of the way this young woman appears and how she speaks, she would be a wonderful wife for the king. And the song of Solomon relates to us the endeavors and attempts of Solomon to win over this young woman's heart. Plain and simply that's what it's about. Time and time again, Solomon tries, Solomon endeavors, Solomon attempts to win her love. But she says no. No, no, no. My heart belongs to someone else. My heart belongs to him who's dwelling at a distance. I'm keeping myself for him. 
And that was no mean feat for this beautiful young girl to do that. And here we have a picture of the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ keeping himself solely and only for the Lord. Turning away from the world's temptations, turning away from the world's pleasures and its treasures, and keeping the heart for the Lord. Some of you might know the Reverend Brian Green from London. He wrote a book in the Song of Solomon. That's exactly the position he takes in it. There's another writer, you may not know this one, but he goes by the name of Godet, G-O-D-E-T, and he is uh, Old Testament words, studying Old Testament words and books, and uh, he takes exactly that view of this book. There are others, no doubt, that take that view, but that's the simplest, folks. That's the simplest way. Go home today and read the Song of Solomon with that in mind and you'll find things will drop into place where you've maybe never seen them dropping into place before. These words of this young girl that we have for our text this morning spoken primarily with regard to her love have a far deeper and a far grander and a more glorious application than she anticipated, that she thought. She says of him, Solomon, I don't want you, I don't want all that you offer me. My heart is belonging to this one, he is altogether lovely. Now the three very simple things in these words this morning, I said earlier that these words can only in their truest sense refer to the Lord Jesus Christ. And with that in mind, there's three very simple things. We have the person of the Lord Jesus Christ reference to he we have the perfection of the Lord Jesus Christ he is altogether lovely and then we have the preciousness of the Lord Jesus Christ he's lovely look at the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a reference here to he and as I've said and this will be the third time these words can only in their truest sense refer to the Lord Jesus Christ. You might say well look hold on a minute this girl lived long before the Lord Jesus came in 
to the world. And this girl would have had her own love. The young man who lived far away in mind. Her then, her then cannot be a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I read to you Psalm 16 this morning. I mentioned to you that uh, C.H. Spurgeon referred to the whole psalm, the whole psalm, as relating to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, certainly, the latter part of the psalm uh, refers to the Lord Jesus Christ because it refers very clearly to his death and resurrection. Look at that psalm. If you look at Psalm 16 and verse 8, David says this, I have set the Lord always before me. Now, David, is that true of you? Have you set the Lord always before you? David, is that true of you? The answer has to be no. There were occasions in David's experience when that did not happen. And we don't have the time to go into those or some of those occasions, but you will acknowledge that he did. So these words spoken by David could only in their truest sense refer to someone else. Someone who had never failed. Someone whose trust in God never failed. And that was the Lord Jesus Christ. Only he could say, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt I suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Now if you were to read Peter's sermon as recorded in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost, Peter makes reference to these very words in Psalm 16. And, and he makes it clear. And this is another thing you can read when you go home. You'll see it toward the latter part of, of chapter 2. He makes it clear that these words possibly couldn't possibly refer to David. For David's in his grave. His tomb is with us to this day. The words are a reference here to a resurrection. Indeed, the resurrection. And Peter says, because David was a prophet, he spoke of the Messiah. He spoke of the Lord Jesus Christ. So these words of Psalm 16 can only refer to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Though it was penned possibly a thousand years before Christ came into the world, yet David prophetically referred to him in this psalm. That's why we call them messianic psalms. There are a number of psalms that speak of Christ. And what can be said of this psalm can also be said of that text in the Song of Solomon. He is altogether lovely. They can't refer, those words cannot refer to no mere man. I'll explain a bit more about it in a minute or two. You see, the Lord was presented to people in Old Testament times. No new thing for people to be confronted with the Lord. Some of you might have Sunday school lessons or classes and you uh, will prepare your lessons for those classes and you'll take an object and, 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 and you'll lift the object in your hand and you'll show it to the children and you'll bring about gospel message or something from the scriptures using that object. Object lessons. That's exactly, that is exactly what God did with his people in the Old Testament times. There's only one gospel. There can only be one gospel. It's called the everlasting gospel in Revelation chapter 14. So there can't be any other gospel. The one gospel from God for all men, for all time, from the beginning of time to the very end of time. And when God presented that gospel in Old Testament times, he did it through object lessons, so to speak. The lambs, the bulls, the goats, the rites, the rituals of the priests and the chief priests and the high priests, the tabernacle in the wilderness, they were all object lessons selling forth the gospel, the same gospel that we hear today. And God was instructing his people then in that way. Some people think, the gospel was never preached till Jesus came. That's wrong. Absolutely wrong. Hebrews 4 and verse 2, the writer makes reference to the children of Israel and he says to his hearers, to whom he's writing, with regard to the children of Israel, for unto them was the gospel. So the Lord Jesus Christ was presented to men and there were occasions when people actually identified him there. There were occasions when he appeared what we call a Christophany, an appearance of Christ before his birth. Same gospel, same message, the same Christ presented to man. So you have the person of Christ. 
But if you look secondly at our little text, you'll see the perfection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, he is altogether lovely. I underline, underscore that word, altogether. For there's no other individual, there's no other person, there's no other man in the Bible that that could be said of. There are some great men and set before us in the scriptures, but by and large, the Lord has shown us in his word that even those men, the best of men, men at the best but there was none comparable to the Lord Jesus Christ he is altogether lovely now in Isaiah 1 we have a description of the nation as it was at that time the people of uh, Judah and Jerusalem And they're described, that nation is described as a stinking, rotting body from head to foot, from the crowd of the head to the sole of the foot. There's nothing in it but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. And that same description can be made of individuals. Indeed, if you go into the book of Romans you'll see that Paul uses various parts of the anatomy to show us how sin, how extensively sin has affected people. Now that doesn't mean when you're described like that, that doesn't mean you're as great a sinner as you possibly could be. It doesn't mean that. When we talk in Bible theology about being totally depraved, it's not that a man is as sinful as he might be. But it simply means that every part of his being has been in some way and in some measure or other affected and infected by sin. By sin. So Isaiah puts it from the crown of the head to the sole of the foot. There's nothing in it but wounds and bruises and putrefying source. Look at the description here, folks. Look at this passage that we have read from, that we have taken our text from, and and, 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 and the Song of Solomon, chapter 5, and it talks about his head. If you read from uh, verse 10 onwards, it talks about his eyes, it talks about his cheeks, verse 13, it talks about his hands, verse 14, it talks about his legs. You see the description there? From the head to the foot, there's not a thing wrong. Because he is altogether lovely. 
you ever wonder why the Lord Jesus Christ was conceived of a virgin? It's simply because everyone else, when we were conceived, inherited a sinful nature. David, in one of his psalms, says he was conceived in sin and shaped in an iniquity. That doesn't mean he was born out of wedlock. It simply means that when he was conceived, he had this inward inclination towards sin and away from God. And even from the cradle, we go astray. Not so with Christ. He has called that holy thing which was born. He did not inherit any liabilities from the fall of Adam. Think about him as he was brought up. That's the term that's used at Nazareth. As he came from infancy to a young child and to young manhood, into mature manhood, think of all that he would have to encounter and all the pressures and all the temptations that come along for you and I as we have progressed through life. There was no giving in to sin. Very little is told us of Christ's early days, but we know that when he was baptized in the River Jordan, when he came up out of the waters, the Spirit of God lit upon him in the shape of a dove, and a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And God the Father would never have said those words had the Lord Jesus at any time during those 30 odd years prior if he had stepped out of line, if he had broken the commandments, if he had sinned in any way at all. Those words would never have been spoken. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. They could only be spoken of one, and that one was the Lord Jesus Christ. Think of the temptations in the wilderness. Think of how the devil sought to turn away the Lord Jesus Christ from the path that was set before him. We can think of time and time again uh, the Lord being assailed uh, by the devil directly and through the agents of the devil. We think of the religious leaders of the day sending men so that they could catch him in his words. And they listened. And they listened closely and they listened intently but could find nothing. And they went back to their masters. And what did they say? 
never man speak like this man. We've never heard anybody like him before. There's not a syllable wrong. There's not a wrong word proceeded out of his mouth. Boy, they were raging. They were seething with rage. Are ye also deceived? You'll read that in John chapter 7. The Lord Jesus Christ himself said toward the end, referring to the devil, the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. Think of Gethsemane. Think of the pressure exerted on the Lord Jesus Christ so that his sweat was as it were great drops of blood and for three and more hours he struggled against all the powers and I mean not all the powers of darkness trying to turn him back trying to destroy him trying to wipe out the cross work But he remained holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. The Bible says of the Lord Jesus Christ, he knew no sin, he did no sin, and there was no sin in him. That's why we say this text can only refer to Christ. Because the young woman prophetically says he is altogether lovely. Not one thing wrong. Never a wrong word proceeded out of his mouth. Never a wrong motive arose within his breast, never a wrong action taken him. He was holy. He was harmless. He was undefiled. He was altogether lovely. And so you have the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have the perfection of the Lord Jesus Christ and lastly you have the preciousness of the Lord Jesus Christ what does this young girl say he is altogether lovely I think about this for a moment when the queen of Sheba came to see Solomon She had heard from a vast distance away and she brought her and her entourage to Jerusalem to see the might, to see the glory, to see the wealth, to see the power of of Solomon. And her breath was taken away and she said, the half, the half was never told me. We think of her overwhelmed. Queen of Sheba was. Look at this young girl. 
It's amazing. It's astounding. For Solomon says, I'll make you my queen. I'll set you upon the throne. I will give you pleasures. I will give you treasures. You can have all that your heart can desire. If you give me your love. As yet I cannot see, but it's his. Nevertheless, he has consumed my heart. He has all my affection. He is all I want. He is all together lovely. Peter in one of his epistles says this, unto you therefore which believe he is precious. He is precious. Let me ask you this morning, let me ask myself this morning, is the Lord precious to you? Is the Lord precious to me? Do we turn from the world and its pleasures and treasures and keep our hearts for him? He is altogether lovely. Do you know the amazing thing, folks? This one who's sinless and spotless this one who is holy and harmless and undefiled and separate from sinners. He loves you. And he loves me. And we only love him because he first loved us. Proof is the shedding of his blood on the cross. We may not know, we cannot tell what pains Christ had to bear, but we believe it was for us he hung and suffered there.